Everyone has a story. Stories of adversity. Stories of perseverance. Stories of accomplishments. And maybe even stories that will make others laugh. No matter the story, we can be inspired and motivated by them. Most of all, we can learn from them. This is the Big Peach Ride Run Podcast, hosted by me, Dave D2 Martinez. And I want to hear your story. And welcome, everyone. It is episode 146 of the Big Peach Ride and Run podcast, and I am your host, D2. And yes, it is spring. It finally feels like spring, and I'm hoping that you have been taking advantage of this great weather. And yes, we've had some uh, some rain, but the rain does uh, kind of help green things up, uh, makes our lawns and the flowers uh, bloom, and uh, just makes it feel and look more like spring. Uh, unless, of course, uh, you know, you suffer from allergies and pollen, then I feel for you. So today's episode, uh, we're going to go uh, nonstop, commercial-free uh, or break-free, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be about um, how to buy a bike. Uh, that was one of the things I teased at the previous uh, episode, because I think right now as we get into spring, People want to uh, get outdoors and maybe you're interested in getting a bike or uh, maybe you already have a bike, maybe you already purchased a bike and thinking about upgrading um, to one. So this is episode and this topic is going to really be more for that intro, uh, entry level uh, individual that maybe you know, maybe has a bike, maybe they bought it at a big box store and maybe it's getting a little bit more serious and wants to go to a dedicated bike shop like we have at Big Page Ride and Run. Um, if you're, you know, competing and, you know, and you're, a, a, you know, a, a, an enthusiast about bikes and this episode probably isn't going to appeal to you. It might be just a good reminder of some things um, that uh, you may or have already uh, been aware of or have just forgotten. Um, but before we get into that, I want to kind of just, you know, mention, you know, if you haven't already, and I mean, as far as cycling, it's one of those things that we kind of get excited about same way as runners get excited about Boston, which is, you know, uh, by the time this episode airs, um, you know, we'll be actually ongoing the day this episode releases will be the Boston marathon. So we follow a lot of those pros and a lot of those races and just get caught up in the excitement. Well, one of the races that happened just a week ago was Paris Roubaix. It is known as the Hell of the North. It happens um, in Europe, you know, as the name sort of kind of, you know, uh, you know, sounds like it's European and it is. Um, and it is one of those um, classic spring races that is just, uh, you have to see it to believe it. Um, it is, um, you know, they have a men's race that has been going on for uh, the longest time, I don't know, for how, several decades. The women's version has only uh, happened three times. This year was the third version of the women's race. And it is exciting. They, you know, what makes it difficult uh, and it's a challenging course is that it is primarily, uh, there's a lot of sections of cobblestones. So you have some paved paths, some cobblestones. Um, you have the chances of wind and rain. And this was a dry day for both the men's and women's race. However, it had rained previously. And so that leaves a lot of slick and wet conditions and lots of crashes. It is one of those things where you're like, how do people race so close together um, and, you know, and survive some of these crashes and kudos to, man, these, the women's race was crazy. They had some major crashes. They got up and they continued to race. The men's as well was incredible. I would uh, recommend that you go onto YouTube, 
watch, um, you know, do a search for Paris Roubaix, P-A-R-I-S-R-O-U-B-A-I-X, two words, um, and watch some of the highlights and just some of the, the, the abbreviated, um, you know, coverage of that because it is exciting. Um, you know, the women's race happened on Saturday and that was won by, uh, Allison Jackson, uh, Canadian and, uh, you know, and it's 90 miles and it came down to a sprint finish. And I don't know how often that happens, but I remember watching it last year and it seemed like, you know, the leader was, you know, had a good distance. Um, but this came down to, a, I think like final five, um, and came down to a, a almost a photo finish uh, sprint, uh, and because they finish in the velodrome, they do a lap and a half around the velodrome. So they come off of the course from the road, enter the velodrome, and then do a lap and a half, and then finish. Uh, in this case, it was a sprint finish. So congratulations to Allison Jackson. And the men's, which is on Sunday, was uh, Matthew Vanderpool, who already has won several races and has got an impressive, uh, you know, professional cycling uh, resume. But the women's race was 90, about 90 miles and the men's was 160 miles. So if you really want to kind of just get excited about it, and you don't have to know all the names, but the, the, the coverage was excellent, the, the excitement and all that. It's, and, you know, if you really want to kind of follow that, uh, get into, you know, watch some of that. I know that uh, next month in May, we're actually going to have here in Atlanta, the National Cycling League is having um, a race here. It's a criterium type race. So it's like 30 laps. Typically, it's about a, a, over a mile course, maybe mile and a half course. Have no idea. I looked earlier today to take a look at where exactly it was going to take place, but I haven't uh, heard anything uh, or seen anything as far as what roads are going to be closed uh, in Atlanta or where that course is actually going to take place. But they also just had the first race of the year in Miami, and that uh, turned out to be a pretty, pretty big race um, and some exciting coverage. So I'm looking forward to actually seeing that race here in person uh, here next month. So let's get into um, buying a bike. So obviously, you know, here's some of the things that we want to kind of cover and, you know, kind of tips about, you know, buying a bike. So yes, visit your local bike shop. You know, there's, um, there's, you know, obviously you can buy stuff on the used market. You know, you can go to a big box store, but, you know, you, if you're going to use market, you kind of have to know what you're getting into. And like I said, if you are experienced enough, you know a lot about bikes, then, you know, you can go that route. This is not what this episode is about. Um, going to a local bike shop like us at Big Peach Ride and Run, we can definitely kind of help you and, um, you know, kind of guide you into, you know, a bike that is going to suit your needs. Um, and, you know, a bike purchase is a lot more expensive than running shoes. So you have to take some things into consideration. And there's a lot of different, um, I, I guess, subcategories within a bike. You know, when we talk about bike, there are different types of classifications of bike. Um, so one of the things you have to first kind of do is consider what type of riding you plan on doing. So that's, you know, if you came in the store and you said, hey, I'm here, I want to buy a bike. First question I would ask you is, yeah. What do you plan on riding? What type of conditions, what type of course, what are you using it for? Are you using it for commuting? Are you using it for just, you know, fitness, general exercise, or just fun? Or are you looking to do something more off-road, gravel, um, you know, um, 
you know, um, cycling on, on just local trails, cycling on the road, all those things would have to take, you know, um, you know, into consideration to kind of help guide you. And even if you're thinking about things like a road bike, you know, are you looking for something to go really fast on something that'd be lightweight, like a climbing bike, or are you looking for a bike that you could really go long distance and more of an endurance type of bike, you know, mountain bike, same thing. There's like cross country where it's, you know, tight, twisty single track where you need, you know, some front suspension, but not necessarily a rear suspension. You've got all mountain enduro and downhill, which requires a lot more suspension, a beefier type of bike. Um, and, you know, even things like gravel bike, you know, are you looking at just doing casual gravel type of, of riding? Are you looking to do gravel races? Are you looking to, for bike packing or touring? Because a gravel bike can serve uh, that person, you know, that purpose as well. And then you've got a newer category, which is e-bikes, you know, as, and, you know, some people are like, well, what's an e-bike? Well, it does, it's, a, it's an electric motor on a bike, but typically it's pedal assist. So you still have to pedal. And what's unique about the new e-bike category is that it opens up a world to people that maybe previously didn't think they would ride a bike in the sense that they didn't feel that they had the physical ability to ride up a huge, you know, a large climb or to go a, a larger distance. So you would still have to pedal, but the motor on an e-bike allows you to not use so much energy in pedaling to where you would, you know, maybe you could only go a mile or two. Well, now you can go, you know, a lot further. You can go 10, 20 miles or 30 miles, something that previously you didn't think you could do. Or maybe it was like, hey, I would really love to ride up this mountain, but it would take me all day or I would probably wouldn't even make it up to the top. Well, now you can, the bike will help, you know, has, has that motor to assist you and make it easier to pedal. So that's a, what a e-bike basically is a pedal assist bike. And there's e-bikes for, you know, commuting and things like that, especially if you want to use it to ride to work, you know, and commute to, to a job. And that way you're not, you know, uh, you know, exhausted or sweaty from, you know, pedaling your bike, especially in the summer. So those are things that I think, you know, those are categories of bikes that you should at least kind of consider as to what the purpose of it is, because just going and saying, I want a bike, it, you know, there's so many options. So that's the first question I would probably, you know, have a conversation and discuss with you. What are your plans for it? How do you plan on using it? You know, um, you know, and it's not necessarily one thing specific. It could be multiple things because you could say, hey, I want to use it for commuting. I also want to go some mountain biking or someone to do some gravel biking. And, you know, maybe there's a bike that could do a little bit of everything. You know, it's not going to do one thing great. But at the same time, one bike could serve multiple purposes um, and save you a lot of money as far as, you know, using, you know, buying one bike as opposed to having multiple bikes, which there's nothing wrong with having multiple bikes. There's a saying in the bike world, how many, you know, what's the right number of bikes? And the answer is always N plus one, where N is the number of bikes you currently have. So you could always use an, another bike, you know, but our wallets are, uh, you know, are limited. And, uh, so that's not always possible. So the other thing to look into is the frame materials. So, you know, there's been, you know, bikes have been made by, you know, for, you know, decades, you know, maybe even over a century from different um, materials. And typically it uh, started with steel. And there's still some bike manufacturers that make 
steel frames. And there's some different characteristics about the different frames, uh, materials. Um, some people love steel. Um, it's, it helps uh, uh, absorb a lot of the road vibrations and, you know, there's special tubing and the way that they're kind of joined and the shaping of it that really helps kind of smooth out the road surface. These days, most of the larger bike brands are going with aluminum and carbon fiber. Steel is still something that can be found, um, but it's really now these days is more about specialty or custom. And, you know, titanium is another one where it's typically more of a specialty or custom type of bike frame. There's a few brands out there, um, smaller brands, uh, you, you know, like U.S. made, you know, uh, American made, um, you know, brands that sell and manufacture and even do custom framing on titanium bikes. And titanium is, you know, a special material that has a lot of the similar uh, properties of steel, but a lot lighter weight. So you, you get a lot of that lightweight and titanium can last a really long time. Some people have said that if they were to buy a titanium bike, that would be their only bike. They would never have to buy another bike again. That frame will last you a lifetime, um, even if it's, you know, um, you know, it, it'll never fail on you. And, you know, most of them have lifetime warranties on them. So even if they did have a crack or something like that, the company would, you know, could repair them and, 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 and fix them. But aluminum is sort of like the preferred option at a lower price point. So you get a, a, a good, a good quality bike, but even then within the, um, the aluminum, um, you know, side of bikes, there's typically a two levels where you have a, a good and a better uh, type of aluminum. And it depends on the brand and, and kind of what they call it. But typically there may be either one type of aluminum or at least two. And, and you know, the differentiation there is, once again, one's going to be a little bit lighter than the other. You know, um, and then the, what most bike manufacturers are going for, and what you'll see a, a large amount of them, and that's where the prices kind of go up, is carbon fiber. And same thing, there's usually two different levels. Um, and, you know, you can get a, a, a good aluminum, um, you know, bike frame that is just as good and maybe even better than a lower uh, quality carbon fiber frame. But higher quality carbon frame is, you know, really kind of like the pinnacle. That's what everyone kind of, uh, you know, wants. A, because it's really lightweight. It's probably one of the lightest materials that you can um, get, and it's really, really strong. So typically, you end up having a a very responsive, um, you know, material, a responsive frame, um, really lightweight, um, and and it tends to be compliant because of the the way the fibers can be shaped and, and the tubes and everything else can be shaped, you can specify different characteristics for, you know, how the bike, you know, will feel under, you know, once you pedal, whether, you know, some like that very responsive where when you, as soon as you, you know, put your foot down the pedal, it kind of gets up and goes. It has a very responsive, like a race car type of very, very responsive. And, um, but typically that comes at a higher price point. So you have those things to kind of consider. Um, so I, you know, most of the times you'll probably have a choice between aluminum and carbon fiber. And like I said, 
kind of knowing which level you're at, once again, it comes down to price point. Um, I think a lot of, uh, some, some manufacturers tend to kind of try to keep it at just one flavor of aluminum and one flavor of carbon fiber just to kind of keep things kind of simple. And then others that have, you know, a lot more options tend to add those two different levels just so they hit different price points and make, um, you know, the bikes a little bit more affordable at that lower price level using uh, less expensive uh, material. Now, just because it's a less expensive material doesn't mean it's a bad bike or that the higher price, um, you know, frames and, uh, and, and, you know, materials make it a better bike. It just sort of depends on kind of what your intentions are. If you're going to race and that is your goal is to want something that's really responsive and lightweight, then yes, you will probably want and need to get that carbon fiber, you know, high end carbon fiber frame. But if your you know, goal is more like, hey, I just want to leisurely ride on, on the weekends or just do it for health benefits or, you know, um, or just to enjoy the outdoors, you know, aluminum frame will, will, will be fine for you. you. You probably don't need to go to that higher carbon fiber, you know, and, and, and at that price point. So there's bikes that kind of fit your budget, fits your needs. So <clears throat> the next the thing to consider is your bike fit and sizing. So there are typically three contact points on a bike. There's the saddle, um, and that's what you call the, the bike seat. It's, it's, it's called a saddle. So if you ever call it a seat and someone corrects you, it's, it, they're correcting you because it's the proper term is saddle. But we'll get what you say if you say bike seat. So you got the saddle where you sit on, you've got the handlebars, and you got the pedals. Those are the three points of contact. And that's where that bike fit kind of comes into play. Every um, bike model and brand typically has different geometries to the bike. So, you know, the saddle is adjustable. The height of the saddle is adjustable. That's the seat post. Um, that can be moved up and down. Um, the handlebars can be adjusted slightly. And the pedals, well, that's the crank on the pedals come in different sizes um, for, for some bikes, and they can be changed out. But typically, they're sized for the frame of the bike. So a larger frame typically has longer crank arms. Now, there are guides on manufacturer's website based on height as to kind of like what size frame you should go with. Now... This gets a little confusing because some manufacturers go with the, you know, extra small, small, medium, large, and even extra large frame designations, right? They keep it simple to, you know, maybe four or five different frame sizes. Then you've got some that go measure it by inches and others that measure it by centimeters. And even some do the, you know, small, medium, medium, large, you know, and large and extra large. So it, it, you know, it gets a little bit kind of weird there, but most of them will have a size chart that says, Hey, if you're five, six to five, nine, you know, you should be in this size frame. Or if you're, you know, four, nine to five, two, you should be in this frame. Or if you're five, 11 to six, two, you're in this size frame. So those are good kind of, um, guidelines, you know, to, 
get size into a bike. So before you kind of, you know, go into a bike shop, you might want to take a look at that and sort of kind of get an idea of like, well, what sort of frame size should I be looking at? You know, whether it's based on centimeters or inches or based on the, you know, small, medium, large type of designation. Now, there's a couple ways to properly measure the size of your frame because there's always the easy way where you're using a guide. And like I said, that's just a guide. There'll be some areas where you can kind of, you know, you you can hit or miss on that. Um, And this is where going into a shop is going to kind of really help um, get you properly sized. But there's also a scientific or a more precise way of measuring. And even then I, I say precise, it's, I say it's precise only because you're using math and you're actually measuring, um, you know, taking measurements. But it's, I still feel that it's more of a guide because I've used this method in the past and it, I always feel like I always tend to still have to adjust the height of my saddle. So one way is to um, measure inseam and measure it by 0.07. You know, multiply by 0.07. So how do you measure inseam? You know, basically, you know, you can take a, you, you grab a book and you grab a pen and you stand up against a wall and you face the wall. You take the, the book and you put the, the side of the book and you straddle it between your legs and you kind of raise it as far as it'll go. Don't put too much pressure. And then as you stand on the wall, you keep that book, you know, level. And the top of that spine of that book is where you're going to make a mark on that wall. Now, I've seen people say, do it barefoot, you know, um, and use that measurement and then multiply it by 0.07. And that should kind of give you the inches if you're, you know, uh, using inches or centimeters to get that frame size. Now, I've done that in the past, and it always seems like I've always had to raise my, the, 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 the seat post up and the saddle height because I always feel like my, uh, you know, it's a little too low. And I haven't done it yet, I and mean, it might be an experiment I do down the road, is to actually put on whatever shoes you're wearing, then take the measurement because... The measurement takes, you know, they're asking you to, to do it and uh, take it without any shoes on, but you're not pedaling barefoot. So I don't know if that the 0.07 is supposed to somehow uh, compensate for that, but it has never worked well for me. So like I said, these are still guidelines to go by. The best way that I've seen, you know, is to once I've gotten close and I get the, um, you know, the frame size. So for instance, for me, I'm a 52 centimeter on my current bikes. So I know that that's my frame size, but the saddle height still can be adjusted. So what I typically do there is, um, is to double check it is like, you don't ever want your knees to be fully locked out in the down position when your foot is all the way down the pedal. So what you want to do is sort of kind of like put your heel on the pedal and put the pedal at the six o'clock, um, position. So pedal to where the, your heel is at the bottom. And then if, you know, while it's resting there, if there's a, if it's almost locked out, but not fully locked out, then that's 
a good kind of place to start and say, okay, let's set the saddle height at that position. So you may want to, you know, do a couple of trial and errors, put a piece of tape on, you know, on the seat post, um, have someone hold the bike up for you or stand, in, you know, in between a doorway to where you can do this and kind of check. But these are things that you should probably be doing. And, you know, anyone at a bike shop should be able to help you do this to make sure that your leg extension is 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 right where it needs to be because if it's too high it'll cause some issues if it's too low it'll cause some other issues so you're either going to get you know after a while if it's in the wrong position you may get some knee pain on the front of the knee and if it's in the, in the opposite direction you may get knee pain in the back of the knee so we want to make sure that you're pedaling and you know um it, you know that your biomechanics are working well with the bike so proper bike fit and sizing is important the other thing to take into account is your handlebars. Your handlebars should be basically the same or near the same width as your shoulders because you want your um, arms to be fully extended in front of you to where they can support you. If, the sh if your handlebars are wider than your shoulders, then your arms are going to spread out across that handlebar and put you in a, uh, um, a less of an ergonomic position. Um, maybe even putting more weight on your hands because of it. And so doing could cause some numbness in the hands and in the fingers um, if, it's, if it's too far apart. Same thing if it's too narrow, then it's, it, you know, your arms are tied in uh, a little bit too much and um, it's not, you know, ergonomically well. It could uh, change, you know, position. Um, and then even then, in some cases, some handlebars, you know, um, are shaped differently as well. So that all has to be taken into account. But you also have the handlebar reach and the reach is basically how far the handlebar extends forward. So if you're handlebar is too far forward, you may be unbalanced. And like I said, you may have more weight on the hands um, that may cause some numbness in the hands and potential shoulder pain. Um, so basically, you should be able to put your hands on the handlebar. And, you know, if your core is strong enough, um, and if the bike and you are set up properly, you should be able to lightly have your hands on top of the handlebars and even be able to remove your hands off the handlebar and still hold that upright position. Um, if you're not able to do that, it's quite possible that your handlebars are too far forward, um, may need to adjust the saddle as far as forward or backward to help kind of balance that out. So that those are things to kind of consider as well. And if it's the handlebars is too short, the handlebar reach is too short and it's too far towards you means that your knee may hit the handlebar, especially if you get out of the saddle um, while you're pedaling, your knee may end, you know, end up striking that, that uh, handlebar. So those are things, like I said, to kind of consider um, as far as, you know, getting properly fit. Um, um, I mentioned pedals. That was the third uh, contact point. And for the most part, there's, there, you know, they do come in different lengths as far as the crank arm length, where the crank arm is that part where it attaches to the pedals that connects to the gear. So they do come in different sizes, but typically they're sized by, um, the size of the frame. So the larger the frame, the longer the crank arms and the shorter, uh, the shorter the crank arms, the smaller the frame is. So there might not be 
too much there as far as adjusting, but some people do, but that is typically at an added expense. And typically it's more of a biomechanic issue where a, um, a, 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 a PT or someone has, has said, Hey, this is causing a biomechanical issue or a coach or a, a, um, you know, someone has identified a biomechanical advantage saying, Hey, by having too short of a crank arm, it's causing you some pedaling inefficiencies or too long of a crank arm is causing some pedaling inefficiencies. Let's change the, the length of the crank arm in order to improve pedaling efficiency. Like I said, that's more for the advance. And so that shouldn't be something you should really get into unless you're truly going to race or do something like that. In that case, you really need to talk to a, a coach and a uh, expert bike fitter. So now we start getting into component groups. And this is where a lot of the pricing kind of uh, is dictated as far as the price, the total price of the bike. Because you could have a, um, a let's say, an aluminum frame that is at a, you know, a lower price point. But then all of a sudden you put in some really high-end components and all of a sudden that aluminum frame costs as much, if not more, than a lower price um, bike with carbon fiber frame. So the manufacturers tend to spec the, you know, based on the price point that they want to, you know, kind of achieve, you know, if they want a lower price point, they're going to put um, lower level components. Now, they're all great quality. You know, um, a lot of the components, especially those that we see in, in our bike shops, uh, do a very, very good job. You know, and you have a nine speed, 10 speed, 11 speed, 12 speed, and now they've got 13 speed. And of course, the higher speeds, the more expensive they are. You get different, uh, sort of kind of different levels of quality, but you get, and like I said, they're all good quality. And when I say different levels of quality, you get sort of kind of like a, a good, best, and better, you know, or good, better, and best, you know, type of quality. Um, and the same thing goes with performance, you know, same thing, good, better, and best in performance. And the same goes into weight, all that goes in there. So, you know, you can get, you know, good quality components that function very well, that'll have, uh, they'll be durable. But if you were to go and spend more money and get higher level components, you're still going to get the good quality. They're still going to last for as much as they, you know, some things will wear out, you know, it just happens. Bike chains wear out, gears wear out, it's mechanical, there's friction and those things will wear out over time. They're just, you know, they're just not going to fail within the first, you know, few years of, of it, you know, unless you ride, uh, you know, 5,000 miles, you know, a year. But what you're also going to get is lighter weight. And if you're, you know, climbing up, uh, you know, riding hills here in Atlanta or mountains and you're going up to North Georgia, that might be something that's important to you. You may want, you know, uh, you know products or, or type of components that are going to be lighter weight because it makes it, you know, easier to pedal up when you're carrying less weight. And that's why a lot of people want a lighter weight bike. Flat surface says it really doesn't make that much of a difference. So that's what you're paying for is, and you're paying extra is for lower weight um, and maybe higher performance. And by higher performance means that the shifting is going to be a little bit smoother, a little bit more seamless. Now, 
they're all going to shift very well as long as they're all properly adjusted. But, you know, you also get now, you got components and, um, and shifting that's electronic, you know, that's wireless. And, you know, you still have a chain, but now you don't have cables running to them, and that's going to increase the cost of it. Um, I've seen, uh, I think, initially now, starting for an electronic group set, um, is somewhere around $2,000. I mean, that's sometimes, you know, more than a bike itself, uh, a complete bike. So you'll, you know, those are things to kind of consider. It's like, do you really want that? Do you really need that? So most of the lower end bikes, and I'll look at, um, you know, th there's two basic uh, companies that stock and produce components and depends on the bike brand and to kind of hit their price points and how they want to, which company they kind of go with. And sometimes it's maybe even a, a little bit of a mix on some things. But the drivetrain or the transmission, which is your, your, front derailleur, rear derailleur, your cassette, and your chain ring um, are typically going to be from one brand. And, you know, one of the brands, I think, and one of the most well-known brands is Shimano. The other is SRAM, S-R-A-M. And so on the road side, you have, from Shimano, you've got Claris, Sora, Tiagra, 105, Ultegra, Durace, and that's from the low end all the way to the high end. Durace is what you will see on professional bike racers. You know, the people that are really serious about it, they want the best, you know, um, drivetrain, the best uh, shifting, the best components are going to pay a premium for Durace. For the longest time, Ultegra has been sort of like, say, that more of that everyman, um, everyday person's. Um, you know, component group. That's what I've typically have had on my bikes. So I get a lot of the same type of uh, performance as Durace, but not a lot of the weight savings and at a cheaper price point than Durace. Prices have changed and now Ultegra and Durace are going more just strictly um, electronic. Um, so 105 is now becoming sort of that, you know, every person, you know, everyday person's, you know, component group right there smack in the middle where you get, I would say probably the best value as far as um, performance, weight, and price. But now they've got an electronic version of that as well. So then you've got Claris, Sora, and Tiagra on the kind of lower end, and those are going to be more for your um, everyday type of bikes, and you'll probably see a, a mix of those. Um, and Shimano now has newer, uh, a newer component group that they release called Qs, which I think will replace these others. Clara Sora and Tiago will go away, and they'll have this new one called Qs with a couple of different levels there. And there's some benefits to that. And um, yeah, a lot of it being the, that they'll be interchangeable between those uh, different. Um, levels because they're all using the exact same type of engineering form. So a lot easier for, for, for buying parts and, and, uh, and service. Um, so you've got that <clears throat> on the, um, SRAM you've got for both road and gravel, you've got rival force and red. So once again, starting from more of the, uh, lower end to the higher end, they only have three, that I'm aware of, Rival Force and Red, and even on those, they've got, I think Red is, at least they have an electronic uh, shifting version of that as well. And then 
mountain biking, Shimano, you've got Dior, SLX, XT, XTR, you know, same thing from, you know, good all the way to best, XTR being the the version of Durace for racing. And that's what typically what you'll see on, you know, cross-country racers and downhill racers are using XTR. XT is where I would say that is still sort of kind of like the, 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 where you get the, a lot of quality and, and performance without the high cost of XTR. And there really is a significant jump when you're going from that mid-range to that higher range. We're not talking, you know, a few dollars. We're talking hundreds of dollars, uh, typically when you're talking about a whole component, uh, group set. Um, and SRAM has got for their mountain bike, um, yeah, they call their mountain bike, uh, group sets Eagle and they've got SX, NX, GX, XO, XX. Um, and, um, same thing. They've got more, uh, choices within that mountain bike range. And, um, and, um, yeah, it can get a little bit kind of confusing, but like, once again, it's all to kind of help get the bikes to a price point that makes sense or that is going to be good for whatever budget you're trying to hit. Um, and, or at least the manufacturers, cause they want to make sure that they have bikes at various different price points from people that are just getting into it that only maybe want to spend less than a thousand dollars to people all the way. They want to spend, you know, several thousand dollars. And yes, you can spend several thousand dollars on a bike. I went into a bike shop one time and saw a $17,000 road bike. And that's like top of the line, electronic shifting, carbon fiber, everything, super lightweight, arrow, and, and it, was, it was unbelievable. Beautiful bike. <clears throat> I just don't have that in me. And, and I just don't have my wallet's not <laughs> just doesn't have uh, the ability to pay for something like that. It's a, it would be a nice to have if I won the lottery, but there's no way I would pay that much for, for a bike. So that tells you a little bit sort of kind of in the components without really t- diving down into the nitty gritty and into the weeds of what each one is. They all perform well. You know, some of them, the shifting is a little bit different. Some you got to push, some you got to pull, some, you, you know, if you've never written any of those components, it won't make a difference. Whatever you start out on first is where you're going to get used to. Um, I have sort of kind of my preference, like for road bikes, Shimano has been my choice because that's always been what I've used um, on the road bike is it's been Shimano shifters. On the mountain bike, you know, I've I've started, uh, at one point I was, you know, way back in the day, they had grip shifts. Um, those, I was never a fan of those, um, but then they went with... Um, the rapid fire shifters and, you know, these, these push pull type of triggers on it. And that just worked phenomenal. The shifting was crisp. It was quick. And I became a fan of, of that, uh, system from SRAM. So both making very good is more kind of a personal preference as to what feels good, what feels more natural to you. Um, brakes are another thing that has sort of kind of changed, um, over the last few years, uh, or I'd say maybe over the last decade even is that you have your traditional, um, brake pads, um, that, you know, break on the rim surface of your wheel. This has been, you know, in use for, you know, over a century, easily since bikes have been around, you know, rim brakes have, have always worked. Um, and it's, you know, cable actuated. So it's got a cable that, you know, you are attached to a lever on your handlebars and that's how you brake, whether it's on a mountain bike or a road bike 
whatever, they've worked really, really well. You know, uh, probably a decade or so ago, disc brakes started coming onto the scene and they, you know, they're, it's a rotor that sits on the center of the wheel and they are now hydraulic for the most part, but they do also have mechanical or cable actuated disc brakes. And the benefit to those is that more for wet conditions, and this is why it was adopted first on mountain bikes, because of the varying conditions, it can get muddy, it can get wet, and you're riding, crossing a stream. So, you know, the performance on rim brakes is going to deteriorate um, and not be as responsive if your, you know, rim on your wheel is wet and your brake pads um, don't have enough force or contact because the water is making them slippery. So a rotor has a lot more greater uh, braking powder, power and they're less likely to um, be affected by, by uh, water. So um, a bit more responsive. And this is similar to what you have on your cars is disc brakes. They're just better um, and quicker for braking. Now, you know, the, the pros for rim brakes is that they're lighter. You know, um, the, you know, if you're worried about weight on your bike, rim brakes is probably the way to go. That's what I ended up choosing on my road bike when I bought it, you know, four years ago. I wanted a, a lightweight climbing bike. So I went and chose, you know, a bike that had rims, uh, rim brakes. Now, the con to that is that you're going to need more time to stop. You're going to need more road to stop. Um, weight conditions are going to impact the performance. I'm going to need more time, especially if it's in, you know, uh, if it's uh, rainy, wet conditions. I'm a fair weather rider, so I don't find myself riding in a lot of wet type of conditions. Um, so that's really not an issue for me. Um, I will say that riding down a steep mountain does make me very hesitant uh, and very conservative on the brakes, especially on a rim brake, uh, a rim brake type of wheel. Um, so those are things to kind of consider. Disc brakes, you know, the pros are you have increased uh, stopping power. They're quicker to stop. The cons is that it's the weight. There's also hydraulic fluid that uh, you have to kind of, you know, maintain and replace. Um, actually, um, Shimano uses mineral oil. SRAM uses DOT fluid. Uh, and even I think some of their models also use mineral oil. So there's a little bit more maintenance in it. You have to bleed the brakes. You have to make sure there's no air in it. Um, and, you know, all this other things that kind of go into it. But much safer as far as stopping quicker, more responsive, especially if you're going downhill, um, you know, they can be of a benefit. But rim brakes have been in use for, you know, over a century, you know, going, you know, in the, you know, the professional rides Tour de France and, and any of the European type races where they're going up some really, really big climbs and, and down them, um, they've worked very well. You just can't go as fast on them because you need to slow down and, and regulate your speed. So those are things to kind of, you know, consider. But it may also, uh, I, I do think that now we're seeing more and more bikes with disc brakes only. And I'm seeing um, even the bike that I purchased four years ago, I can't buy that same bike today, even in the newest version of it, as a complete bike with rim brakes. It's only sold with disc brakes. 
The only way I could get that same bike right now is I would have to buy the frame by itself and build up that bike from scratch uh, and purchase all the components or transfer my existing components to that new bike frame that supports rim brakes. So there's, there's a transition going and you may still find some that have uh, rim brake, but yes, that'll also be a little less expensive and disc brakes will move that price point of that bike a little bit higher. Um, I'd say a few hundred dollars, you know, higher, maybe $200 or more for the exact same bike with everything else, probably an additional $200 uh, for that bike versus the same bike with rim brakes. So now let's talk about budget because we haven't talked much about pricing. I did mention that I did see a bike uh, at a shop that cost about $17,000. And that is, we're seeing more and more of that. Like I said, several years ago, that was like, oh man, that's just only for the pros and races, you know, people that race. And we're seeing them in the, you know, $10,000 and up. Uh, you know, I've seen several bikes now um, that have come out over the last few years that are in that $13,000 to $17,000 range. Now, that's a very small percentage and very small uh, percentage of people actually uh, need a bike at that price point. If you're, like I said, if you're racing, um, if you're trying to compete, go pro, then yes, you are going to need that. But at the same time, if that's who you are, you're probably not listening to this podcast. If you're not listening to this, you know, you probably already kind of, uh, you know, dumped out of this podcast by now. So if you came into you know, or uh, ride and run sh shops. That would be one of the first questions I would ask you is kind of what is your budget? How much do you plan on spending? Now, the reason for that, and I know that I, I've, because I've been on used car lots and car lots and they say, well, what's your budget? And they try to get you at your budget or even higher, spend more than what you're willing to spend. My point in asking that question is because I don't want you to spend more than what you're willing to spend for a couple of reasons. One, I need to know kind of a, a couple additional things about you. For instance, is this your first bike? Do you, you know, and if you, if it's not your first bike, do you have some of these other things like a helmet, uh, a, a floor pump to pump up your tires? Do you have, you know, a saddlebag with a repair kit? Do you have a bike uh, shoes? Do you need a bike lock? Do you need lights? Are you commuting? Do you need things? Because your budget should include those type of things. And the reason they should include those type of things and why we should make sure that you think about those things before you walk out of the store with a brand new bike is if you walk out, if you buy a bike and you spend your entire budget on a bike and you take it out, and you don't have a helmet, one, you're not safe. You should be safe. You should be uh, protected. Um, and if you don't have one, and we didn't at least attempt to educate you on, you know, the hel on why you need a helmet, and then you get you know, injured for some reason, you take a fall or you get hit by a car or whatever, you know, something happens, then, you know, I know I would feel very bad about it, you know, I don't want to see anyone get hurt, and I think safety is probably the most important thing. Um, whether you're a runner, whether you're a cyclist, whatever you do, you should be well protected, and we should do whatever you can because a brain injury is not something you want to joke with. 
So I want to make sure you have a helmet, okay? Do you have a, a floor pump, you know, to pump up your, your tires? Because you'd be surprised at how many people buy a bike, take it out for a few weeks, and then the tires lose pressure because they will lose pressure over time, and, they, and the tires go flat, and the bike sits in the garage, in a shed, in a basement, and they never ride it again because they don't have a pump. Now imagine spending several hundred dollars on a brand new bike. You ride it for maybe three or four weeks, tires go flat, and then it never sees the light of day again. Simply because you didn't spend $50 you know, on a tire pump. So we want to make sure that buying a bike you know, is an enjoyable experience for you, not only when you're in the store, but once you leave the store and that you are able to continue to experience the joy of riding a bike um, and you can't do that on you know, flat tires. So we want to make sure that you are completely prepared for whatever may happen down the road. And this is where the saddlebag comes in. So what's a saddlebag? Well, as I said, the saddle is what you sit on, right? That's a seat basically. So the saddlebag... Um, is the bag that gets strapped underneath the saddle, underneath the seat. You're like, well, why do you need that? Well, you need that because that's where you carry your tools and your repair kit. So what is a, a repair kit? Well, it could vary. It could be a, some, something as simple as a spare tube. Um, it could be a patch kit to patch up a, a tube that has a hole puncture in it. It could be um, a, a CO2 cartridge. So there's, the, you know, we sell and they're available a CO2 cartridge that basically is compressed air along with a little adapter that you then hook up to your valve stem on your tire and you pump up your tire on the road and you don't have to have that pump. Now, these CO2s are for that, you know, in case of emergency. You know, this is sort of like that, you know, red box on the wall and you like, you know, break glass in case of emergency, that's what that CO2 is for. You don't want to use that every time you want to pump your tire because um, there's no way of knowing how much, you know, tire pressure you need. You can't just like, well, I'm just going to put a little bit of air using a CO2 because once you crack that CO2, eventually you need to use it. Otherwise it just goes to waste. And there are, yeah, I think, I can't remember how much they are. I bought some recently. I can't remember. But, you know, they're, they're a couple of dollars. You know, uh, it could be as much as $5 each CO2. So um, so you need to have uh, you know, uh, some tools to take the tire off, um, make some adjustments, maybe tighten a bolt or two. Uh, over time, things will get loose. Maybe if you just want to adjust your saddle height, you need, you know, an Allen key or something like that. So there's uh, tools that come, you know, a toolkit, um, a multi-tool even that you can purchase and have all this. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to also have a mini pump, something that you could um, mount to your frame or put in your jersey pocket to have with you in case, you know, you don't have a CO2 or you have multiple punctures and, you know, your first CO2 is, you know, second CO2 is gone and you need to actually manually pump it. So those are things that you should consider because once again, you don't want to go out for, for a ride and, you know, go on your first ride and you get a flat tire and that's not a good experience. You're stranded on the side of the road, depending on how far you are. And trust me, it will happen at some point. I have 
on several occasions bought a brand new bike and have gotten flat within the first few miles of that ride. I don't know why it happens, but it does happen. It happened to me once. I was out, you know, had a brand new mountain bike, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to take it around the, you know, around the neighborhood or whatever. And went down to Piedmont Park, and I ended up with a flat. I don't know how I ended up getting back home. I uh, may have had uh, an old um, saddlebag with a, with a tube in it and was able to, to switch it out, but at least I had that. Another time, the bike that I purchased just four years ago, I was doing a test ride from the store, had not even purchased a bike yet, and had not been, you know, half a mile down the road when it ended up getting a flat. Had to walk the bike back because, of course, I hadn't purchased a bike. I didn't have a, a saddlebag. So it will happen. Um, tubes, they just wear out. You know, sometimes you'll hit a bump or a curb, and if there's not enough air pressure, you'll get what's called a snake bite or a pinch flat. It's basically the tubes get compressed in the tire against the rim, and it pinches it, and it causes these two like two little holes, um, and so it looks like a snake bite, and that's why they call it that. So it will happen, especially if your uh, you know uh, tubes and the tires aren't um, uh, you know are not at a higher pressure. So. And that'll go into tubeless tires at a separate conversation, maybe a separate blog post to talk about that or video as to why the benefits of tubeless uh, tires are, are good for you. So once again, how much do you have to spend? Do you have all these things available to you? If you already have them, then great. You can put more money towards the bike. Um, if you don't have them, then you should allocate you know, part of your budget to some of these items because you're going to need them, if not on your first ride, shortly thereafter. So what are the price ranges on bikes? Well, I've, I did a quick search and you can get anything from, you know, a, 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 you know, a good bike starting at around $400. And I would say you can go up to $5,000. Like I said, you can even go further than that. But in that range, you're going to get a good bike. It sort of depends on kind of what you you know, want to use it for. If it's a commuter bike or just for general fitness, you can spend on that lower range, you know. And really, you can get a really nice, good bike that'll last you a really long time, probably right around that $800 to $1,000, even $1,200 range, and be happy with it, you know. Spend a little bit more and you're going to get, you know, a lighter weight frame, you know, made out of probably a higher grade aluminum or carbon fiber, you know, lighter components. And it's just going to make that experience, you know, a bit better. Doesn't mean that it's a better bike. It just, it's what you're paying extra for is for that whole experience. You know, it'll be the difference between, you know, going fast, you know, and feeling comfortable on the bike to, you know, feeling really fast on the bike, you know, and, and feeling like you could take on the world. That's sort of kind of the best way I can explain when you're spending money. So it's sort of kind of like, what do you want? You know, now beyond that, there's other things to kind of consider, you know, some bikes, you know, don't come with pedals. So you have to buy pedals on top of that. Um, you know, do you want bike shoes or are you, are you going to use your regular shoes? So those are things to kind of consider as well. And, and shoes can vary from, you know, $100 to $200, just like, you know, running shoes your kit, you know, and you're like, well, what's a kit? Well, your kit is basically your, 
your cycling jersey, your cycling shorts, and you know gloves, and you know there, you know you got you know there's also you got the shorts, you got the bibs, which the bibs are just like they have shorts but with straps on them. I was, you know, I was totally against bibs for the longest time until I actually tried them and realized that that's the way to go. They're a bit more expensive, but they're more comfortable. You don't have that the, the elastic on the waist. The bibs hold up the shorts. You don't have the shorts riding down. It makes a huge difference. So you can get a complete kit anywhere from $100 to $150, but the quality is going to change. And I've purchased just shorts alone that are in the $100 to $150 range because the comfort of the padding is going to make a difference as to how comfortable you are on the bike. And that is a whole separate conversation, but things to kind of consider. Gloves as well, you know, they've got padding on them to help, you know, you know alleviate some of the pressure and some of the vibrations from the road uh, or the trail, whatever you have, or if you tend to fall at some point, you know, that offers some additional protection as well. If, you know, you're, you know, taking your bike further than, let's say, your house or neighborhood, then you're going to need a way of transporting that bike to, uh, you know, whether it's a path, a trail, um, you know, an area or you're, you know, going on vacation, you're going to need uh, a bike rack. And that could be anywhere from $500 to $800. Um, and, you know, unless you can, you know, stuff it in the back of your car in some way, because you got a hatchback or fold down seats or, you know, you got a big SUV, maybe you can, you know, load it that way and, and, and not spend it. But at some point you're going to, you know, go on a vacation, you know, throw luggage or family or whatever, and you're going to need a bike rack, but something to consider down the road, maybe not something you're going to need right away. If you're commuting or if you're, you know, you know, want to use a bike shop, you know, bike to ride, you know, down in the store and pick something up or, you know, go to a coffee shop and just casually meet with, you know, with friends or something like that. You might, I would say not might, I would say strongly consider a bike lock because a nice bike is, it's going to disappear. So invest in a good bike lock. Um, and yeah, that, the bike locks I've seen anywhere from 500 to $200, maybe even more. And obviously, the higher the price of the bike lock, the more difficult it is for someone to cut into it. Um, don't go for a $10, $20 bike lock cable. Um, spend the extra money if, uh, if you really want to secure uh, your investment in your bike. Um, and I'd say the last thing you probably should consider is lights for your bike. Not even, even if you don't ride at night. Riding during the day, it would still be good to have a red strobing light on the back of the bike so that vehicles can see you, and a, uh, a white strobing um, light on the front of the bike, same thing, so that approaching cars will see you as well. So anything that's bright and strobing is going to grab a, a, a driver's attention and uh, hopefully make them aware of you on the road or you at the intersection, and it'll just make you that much safer. So these are things that I think you should consider um, and conversations you should have when you come into a bike shop. And, um, you know, there's probably a lot more that we can get into, but those are the things that I say, come into and visit us, um, at Big Peach Ride and Run. We can answer your questions and kind of guide you into a bike that hopefully you are going to be excited about going out and enjoying, uh, the spring weather and really, uh, you know, 
uh, improving your quality of life because if, if you're a runner, you know that being out there is a mental relief. And as a cyclist, you get the exact same thing. You get the endorphins, you get that runner's high, you get that cyclist high. It's all good. Exercise and movement is good. So that leads me to the last thing I'll cover on this episode. And that is, um, I do want to promote and make you aware of Move for Grady. It is an, uh, an event that supports the Grady Health Foundation. It takes place on May 6th. And if you're a cyclist and you buy a bike, it's a great opportunity and a great place to go because it is a fun event now. They've got different distances. They've got a 10 mile, 25, 50, 60, and 100 miles. So even if you're just a beginner and want to take out that brand new bike and kind of explore some country type of scenic type roads, the 10 mile is perfect for you. Um, there's also, for those of you that are in a running, they've got a, a 5K and a 10K, and this is all off-road, so really no asphalt except maybe right at the beginning, but it's going to be on grass, on gravel, on, you know, uh, you know, double track type of, you know, uh, dirt roads. So regular running shoes will work, but it is a great, it's a family friendly event. It's fun. It's got a lot of activity for the kids. It's got rock climbing walls. Um, it's got, you know, a kid's race that's included in the adult registration. There's food, there's music, there's DJs, there's bands, and it's a good time. It's one of those things that it's down in, in South uh, Fulton, South of Atlanta. Um, and it's one of those things that I just think that they put on a, one of the best uh, cycling type of uh, events and, and the, that they include running in it as well is, is even better. Um, so it appeals to everyone. You can make a day out of it. Um, bring the family out there. If you're a cyclist um, and the rest of your family isn't, you can go out for a ride and the rest of the family can hang out and run and enjoy the activities while you're out enjoying uh, yeah, your ride. And there's not a lot of events that you could do that. Typically, on a, for a cycling type of event, it's like you go out, you leave the family at home, and you're like, I'll see you when I get back. And this is not the case. So plenty to do. They've got a lot of, uh, I think, yeah, they got horses out there and uh, some farm animals. So the kids would uh, really, I think, uh, have a great time at that. So move for Grady, May 6th. Whether you're a cyclist, whether you're a runner, whatever the distance is, they've. Uh, it's a great, uh, you know, event and I would highly recommend. I will be out there. Our Big Peach Ride and Run team will be out there. Big Peach on Wheels will be out there. I will actually be out there riding the 100 miles. I hope I'm prepared for it. Um, and, um, you know, look forward to, uh, to seeing you out there. So if you stop by the Big Peach Ride and Run tent and the Big Peach on Wheels, stop by and say hello. I'd love to uh, kind of, you know, get your thoughts on uh, these episodes and always great to meet people that, uh, that listen and, uh, you know, if you have some encouraging words or, or some suggestions or things that you'd like, just let me know. I'm all for it. So until next time, keep running, keep riding, and keep believing yourself. See ya. Do you have a story or know someone with a story that can inspire, motivate, or even empower others? Email me at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. I want to share your story. Don't forget to connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others.